Well, it's Christmas time, and at my house, I've got my boys asking every day, you know, Dad, how many days until Christmas? We've got the, the chain of uh, links on our Christmas tree, and every day they pull one off to, to count it down, and, and it's just an exciting time, Christmas time, and, and I've got to be honest, they're excited, and I'm excited. I like Christmas. I like opening presents on Christmas Day. I mean, I'm not going to apologize for that. that it's exciting. And, and, uh, and I remember as a kid, you know, wondering the days up until Christmas, will I get what I've been asking for? You know, I put a good word in with Santa. I've been on the nice list at least for two weeks with mom and dad. You know, I got this thing in, you know, and you wonder Christmas morning, am I going to open up presents and am I going to get what I've been asking for? Um, let, let me just see here, just, just to see kind of what, who's in the room. Let me ask you this. Have you ever accidentally, accidentally found your Christmas presents before Christmas Day? Anybody ever accidentally? Yep, all right, that's good, that's okay. Um, <laughs> I remember when I, when I was a child, I have no idea what I was doing in my mother's closet. Um, <laughs> But, but I remember finding um, a Louisville Slugger baseball bat. I mean, it was awesome looking. And the first thought in my head was, I never knew mom was so into baseball. Um, it turns out it was one of my presents that year. All right, a moment of honesty. How many of you, it's not an accident, you have actually gone on the hunt for your Christmas presents? Yep, a room full of sinners. That's okay. You are, you are in great company, okay? Um, all right, well, let's take it one step further. How many of you, you've gone on the hunt for your Christmas presents, found them, played with them, and then put them back before anybody as, you know, hoping you wouldn't get caught? Yep, we have a prayer group for you later. That's, that's great. That's good. Get that off your chest. It's got to feel good. Um, yeah, you know, there's just that kind of anticipation with Christmas. And sometimes we'll take matters into our own hands. And, but just that wonderment, are we going to get what we've been asking for? And, uh, and sometimes that's Christmas, and sometimes that's Christmas presents. Sometimes that's just us in our relationship with God. Sometimes, you know, we have these things called unanswered prayer requests. <laughs> you know, where, where maybe you've been praying for something. Uh, maybe it's been days, maybe months, maybe years, maybe decades. You've been praying the same prayer to God, and you're wondering, is God going to answer my prayer? Is he going to give me what I've been asking for? And maybe you even think you have some sort of inkling that you feel God's maybe even told you, yeah, it's, it's going to happen, but you want to be sure. <laughs> you want to know with all certainty that that's going to happen, and then you'll know what to do if you could only be sure that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. Well, our story this morning is about an unanswered prayer request, about a people who've been praying the same prayer for, for decades, if not hundreds of years. And, and they believe God said he would even do this, but, but at this point they're wondering, does God even hear our prayers anymore? Has God just given up on us? You know, was it just a good story or a myth? And, and uh, you know, are we going to get what we've been asking for? If you got your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Now Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, he's going to tell us the story of Jesus. But he starts chapter 1, he starts the story of Jesus, and he doesn't talk about Jesus. He talks about Jesus' cousin and the foretelling of Jesus' cousin's birth. And we're just going to start this morning, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. said, In the time of Herod, king of Judea. And we're just going to stop right there. 
Um, that may mean nothing to you, and that's fine. But, but if you're Jewish back then, or, or a few years after, or if you're a historian, you would know that this is one of the darkest times in Israel's history. Under the reign of King Herod. Now, Herod's a family name, and so you see this name throughout the Bible. Um, and sometimes it's the same guy, sometimes it's one of his sons, or, or so forth. It would be kind of like our last name. But, but in this particular case, this is Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great wasn't great because he was big, strong, tall, or something like that. In fact, Josephus, the, uh, the Jewish historian, says that Herod stood at about four feet, four inches. So not a very tall man. He's not great because he's loved by his people. Um, in fact, Herod, his, his uh, ancestry, he's an Edomite. In other words, if you go back into the Bible stories, there were two brothers named Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob later has his name changed to Israel. And so you have the Israelites that, that live in Israel. And then you have the, the sons of Esau, the other brother. They're called the, they're Edomites. That's their ancestry. And for years, decades, centuries, the families of these two brothers have been enemies. And so at this point in history, you have Israel that is under the rule of an enemy king. And so he wasn't very loved by his people. He's Herod the Great, one, because he probably gave himself that title, but two, because he was a great architect. In fact, he had several building projects going at the same time, built up several cities, built a harbor. He, he built um, a, a building or, or buildings you can still see standing today in Israel. In fact, on every brick that was used to build one of Herod's uh, buildings, he would have his logo stamped on that building. Took credit for every single brick that was put into his building. I mean, you can go and see these buildings still today, and it's like walking in and seeing Nike swooshes everywhere. I mean, he just took full credit you know, for, for everything to show that he was great. One of his most popular building projects was to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, he didn't really worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, but, but he knew the Israelites would, and so he, he rebuilt their temple. Now, he also built his palace right next door to the temple to show that, you know, there's God, but then there's also me. Herod was brilliant and evil, which is like the worst kind of evil. I mean, this guy, he would go in, he would disguise himself, go into the town there in Jerusalem, and he would listen to what people had to say about him. And if he didn't like what they were saying, well, all of a sudden these people would have accidents, and they would disappear. In fact, there were so many murders, so many accidents that, that, were, that happened, you know, for people who spoke out against Herod, that eventually there's this great public outcry. So Herod has to change up his strategy a little bit. He goes ahead, he builds this palace in this nearby town of Caesarea Philippi, which is like the Vegas back then. And he takes a freshwater spring, he builds a freshwater pool that's surrounded by a saltwater ocean, which is a great architectural feat in itself. And then he would invite you to a pool party. And at every pool party... There was an accidental drowning. And so you would get the invite to Herod's pool party. You dare not turn it down or you're going to die. Um, and you would go to the pool party and just hope that you were one who could swim that day. You know, and that that's all that would happen. He outlawed public assembly and public speech so that nobody could even get together and say something bad about him. He killed his wife. He killed his mother-in-law. He murdered his two sons. Caesar Augustus said of him, said, said, it was safer to be Herod's pig than one of his sons. This guy 
was evil. And under his rule was a very dark time in Israel's history. And so Luke sets up the story by just sharing with us how bad things have gotten. Let's continue in verse 5. In the, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Your Bible may say Zacharias. It's the same thing. He belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, they're credited with being righteous and, and blameless. And in the Greek, this is more of a generic term. It doesn't mean that they were perfect. It just means in this bad, awful time, they continually made good decisions. When everybody else was cheating on the test, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they said, we're not going to cheat. Uh, when everybody else was telling lies, Zechariah and Elizabeth said, we're going to speak the truth. And when everybody else was doubting and it stopped believing, Zechariah and Elizabeth well, they were still holding on to hope. In fact, they were holding on to a covenant promise that was made 2,000 years before their time. A promise that was made by God to a man named Abraham. And in this promise, God promised Abraham, one, I'm going to make your name great, which he did. Everybody knows Abraham. Two, I'm going to have your descendants. They're going to make a great nation, which they did. They became the Israelites, the nation of Israel. And then three... Through your lineage, I am going to bless the entire world. Now, it's been 2,000 years at this time, and that hasn't happened. And, and they're thinking, well, maybe, you know, during the, the time of King Solomon, when Israel's the greatest nation in the world, when they're at their peak, perhaps this is when God's going to bless the entire world. He's going to have something special for Israel, to, for the entire world. Perhaps that is when it's going to happen, but it doesn't. In fact, after King Solomon's reign, the, the kingdom is split into two. And, and all of a sudden, they, they become conquered nations. And, and by this time in history, 25 different civilizations have conquered and reconquered and taken over Israel. I mean, there's been the Assyrians that took them over, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. They're under the Roman Empire. They are an enslaved people, an occupied people. And it's been 400 years since God has said a word to anybody. 400 years since Malachi gave a prophecy of hope. But I mean, it's been 400 years. Not a word from God. And the people in this day, they're over Roman. You got Roman occupation over them. You've got this evil king who's in charge and making their lives miserable. And you have this promise that everybody else has given up on. Everybody else says, you know what, that was great 400 years ago, but now it just kind of seems like a bedtime story. Now it just seems like a myth. Now it just seems like wishful thinking. Surely God has given up on Israel. Surely God is not going to do what he said he was going to do. Surely he, he's done with us. But there's at least two people, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are holding on to a promise. In fact, Zechariah's name means God remembers. Elizabeth's name means God's oath. So together, Zechariah and Elizabeth means God remembers God's oath. I just think that's cool and important. Uh, out of curiosity, I went ahead and I tried this with me and my wife's name. So I, I Googled it and I got, I got Tom and I got Erica, which means doubly alone. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, if you're single, you may not want to hang out with us. Um, 
I, I went ahead for round two, just out of curiosity. I took the, the names of my children. I got Avery, Mason, and Parker, which means an elf who makes stones for the park. So not, not any better. We, we should have thought that through. Let's go on to, uh, to verse 7. Here you've got good people making good decisions in a bad time. And you'd think they'd be blessed for it. But verse 7 says, they were childless. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. They were both very old. Now that's not a great thing now, but it was really not a good thing then. In fact, whenever a woman was barren, it was always blamed on the woman. They didn't have the medical or scientific knowledge to know anything different. And then several people would make the assumption that this woman cannot have children because she obviously has a secret sin in her life. She's obviously done something wrong that God would punish her in this fashion. In fact, later on in the text, when Elizabeth is describing her situation, she says, you know, I I was disgraced. And and, and in the original Greek where we get it, it, actually it's the word abused. She wasn't abused by her husband. In fact, he stayed married to her even when he could have publicly divorced her during that time. She was abused by religious people, by church people. By, by the very people who should have embraced her and hugged her, they were the ones that were, that were spreading rumors about her and gossiping about her and isolating her based off a sin that she didn't even commit. She was abused. In fact, this, this didn't just mess with her social status. Um, this also affected them financially. They're getting old. And, and back then when you got old, your kids took care of you, especially your sons. But, but in this situation, there's nobody to take care of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Let's read on in verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the customs of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the... Uh, the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now our story begins to zoom into the city of Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem at this point, it's a city of about 100,000 people, which may not seem like a big deal to us, but most people, including Jesus, Peter, and Zechariah, came from towns of about 50 to 100 people. See, Zechariah is not like a big deal Jerusalem priest. He's from a little rural, rural town that no one's heard of. He has a congregation in his synagogue, maybe about 20 to 30 people who show up every week. He's one of 18,000 different priests at that time that are divided up into 24 divisions, about 750 in each. And twice a year, they would make a long-distance journey. His division would show up in Jerusalem, and they would cast lots. They'd kind of roll the dice and felt that God was in that. And somebody, one out of 750 guys, would be chosen, would be chosen by lot to go ahead and do the priestly duties in the temple that day. Now, once you did it once, that was it. That was your Super Bowl. You got to do it. You couldn't do it again. And so Zechariah and most of the other guys, well, they would show up, make the long distance travel at least twice a year, cast, cast the lots, never get picked. They show up the next year, cast the lots, never get picked. They, they take the, the, the long distance travel the next year, never get picked. The next year, never get picked. It's like you and gym class. I mean, this is it, it, every time showing up, hoping. But this day is different. This day, he gets picked. 
And so this is his Super Bowl. This is his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And what he's going to do is he's going to walk into the holy place. It was next to the Holy of Holies, and he would walk to the altar of incense, and he would take incense, and he would throw it onto the hot coals, and it would make this smoke that would go up to heaven, and it would represent the prayers of the people going up to God. And the people on the, on the outside of the temple, they would be in the courts and they would be kneeling down on the, the hard marble and, and hoping for a short priest, you know, one who could just get in there, throw the coals, you know, this hurts our knees, let's do this. Um, and and they, would, they would pray the prayer. The most common prayer was, Lord, will you please send us a deliverer? Will you please send us this Messiah? Will you please do something special with your people, Israel? And if this was a movie... It would be this wide picture. Luke would have us this wide shot of Israel occupied by the Roman Empire. And it would begin to zoom in and begin to focus in on the region of Judea that's under the reign of this evil King Herod. And it would come down to this bustling city of Jerusalem. And it would focus in on the point of the temple there in Jerusalem. And there you would see walking into the temple this guy named Zechariah who's a nobody from nowhere who's done nothing significant with his life up until this point. And he walks into the temple and he throws the incense onto the coals and he probably prays for two things. One, Lord, would you please send the Messiah? Would you please send a deliverer? And two, Would you please give me a son? It's often in the darkest moments, the most hopeless times, where God shows up. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Now, I find it interesting that whenever an angel shows up in the Bible, they always have to start with the same phrase. You ever notice that? Let's just get this out of the way. Don't be afraid. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I, I, which means they're probably scary. They're probably big. They're, they're probably loud. Uh, you know, I, I, I know I've talked to people before, you know, that just they, they, they know they just had an interaction with an angel this week. And, and I'm just thinking, not a Bible angel. <laughs> I, I mean, whenever these guys show up, you know, you're like falling to your face. You're crying, you know, you're star- you, you can't move or what have you, you know, uh, you know, or people I've heard too, you know, it's like, I really want God to speak to me. But whenever God like even dials it down to one in the Bible, people are freaking out. I mean, this is a, this is a big deal. And, uh, and I mean, you know, you got this big scary angel and at least he's talking to Zechariah. I mean, the guy who's righteous and blameless. But what if it was you? You know, let's be honest. We'd start confessing sins we didn't even commit, you know, and just angel have, have us clean up. You know, this, this is, you know, this is a big deal. God's showing up, and he's got to start with, don't be afraid. Yeah, I am God. I'm a messenger from God. Don't, don't freak out. The second thing he says is, Zechariah, God has heard your prayers. You see, I think for many of us, it's not so much that we want God to answer our prayers as much as we just want to know, God, are you still listening to our prayers? Have you, have you, have you given up on me? Or do you still hear me? I keep praying this over and over. And the angel brings some good news. Guess what? God has heard every single one of your prayers. 
And that's why I'm here. He goes on in verse 13. He says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Just notice he's in the womb. He's already got a name and the Spirit of God. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God. John's name means God is gracious. And I love how the angel talks about him. He's like, he is going to be great. I I know at the beginning of the story you got Herod the great. Yeah, not so great. John is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Herod's going to have money. He's going to have property. He's, he's going to have people who have to listen to him. But John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And he is going to turn people back to God. Why does he have to do that? Because everybody's given up. Because everybody has, has thought God has given up on us, so we're going to give up on God. God has not listened to us one bit. He's not going to come through with what he said he's going to do. They've stopped believing. But John, well, he's going to be great, and he's going to do something great, and that is to bring people back, to deliver the great message that God has heard every single one of your prayers. And he's just getting ready to do something great with them. And you would think, you would think Zechariah, who just prayed this prayer, God, would you give me a son? An angel shows up and says, guess what? God heard your prayers and he's going to do it. You would think he would jump for joy. You think he, he, would, do, he would just say something profound. But verse 18, Zechariah then asked the angel, well, how can I be sure of this? I am old. I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Which just notice the diplomacy there. You know, I'm old, but he doesn't say that about his wife. That's just smart. That's just, that's good. You know, he's got, he's got more faith in biology than he does God at this point. You know, and, and you can go, well, Zechariah, what more, what more proof do you need? I mean, you've been praying this prayer for decades. You know, today you get picked out of everybody else. You're in God's holy place, and an angel shows up. What more proof do you need, Zechariah? And we can look at Zechariah, and we can laugh. You know, here he just prayed, God, would you do this? And God says, totally heard you. It's going to happen. And Zechariah goes, no, it's not. (laughs) But how many times do we do that? How many times God has given us a promise, and and we say, you're not going to do that. I know you said you would take care of me. I know you said you clothed the flowers of the field, but you, I don't see, you're not going to clothe me. I know you said if I seek first the kingdom of God, then all these things will be taken care of, but I'm not banking on that. I want to know, I want to be sure. What kind of certainty can you give me? I mean, we all want that kind of, want to be sure, want to have that assurance, that certainty. And some of us may be, may be frozen. We're not going to move until we can be 100% sure that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And if you are waiting to be 100% sure, you're probably going to stand there till you die. Because the issue is not a lack of proof. The issue is a lack of faith. Verse 19, the angel said to him, 
I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent. Not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words. I think it would be wise for us at this time of the story to stop and learn. (laughs) In fact, I want to just give us some things that we need to learn before we walk out of here today. The first is this. Number, if you've got, you got your bulletins, there's an outline in there. You can fill in the blanks and we'll, we'll go through this. But the first is simply this. Everyone struggles with doubt. Everyone. I don't care if you're righteous. I don't care if you're called blameless. We struggle. And there's different levels of doubt. I mean, you have the guy who's the skeptic. The guy, you know, who who's has so much confidence in his own intelligence that he feels the freedom to doubt anything else that other people say, feeling that he's smarter and then there's the person who might doubt. They, they want to believe, but they're hung up on a question. They're hung up, you know, it might be like, why do bad things happen to good people? Or, or how could a loving God? And, and until they feel like they can get that question answered the way they want it answered, they, they, can't, they can't believe, they doubt. And then there's believers. <laughs> then there's Christians who nine times out of ten we believe, nine times out of ten we're praying, Lord, if you just answer us, I'll believe in you. And, and, uh, and we're used to, to looking up to God, but for some reason there's been a trial in our life and, and we've lost our focus on God and we're stuck looking down at the situations, stuck looking at the trial and, and, and we forget. And God says, I hear you, it's going to happen. And we go, no, it's not. <laughs> I, I, I can't see it. It's because we're looking in the wrong place. And, and we're a believer who's forgotten to believe. The second thing we need to learn is that doubt is often connected to those disappointments, to those long-term trials. You see, the grace of God does not exempt us from trials and tribulations. It it makes it more meaningful. You see, I I think before you're a Christian, I think your life looks something like this. You kind of got this roller coaster of a ride kind of thing going on. I think once you accept Jesus, your life looks like this. Higher highs and lower lows, but you're not in it alone, and every bit of it's meaningful. God's grace doesn't, doesn't keep us from trials. Everybody's got something. You'll get everything going good at home, and something bad goes on at work. You'll get everything going good at work, and something bad goes on at home. There's always something that, that cries out for us to believe or cries out for us to depend on something bigger than ourselves. Third thing we need to take away this morning is there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. See, if you go down in this chapter one, if you go down a few paragraphs, Gabriel's gonna show up again. He's gonna visit someone else. Her name's Mary, and she's a virgin, and he's gonna tell her that she's gonna have a miraculous birth, and she's to call him Jesus. And Mary has a similar but not the same response as Zechariah. Mary's response is, how can this be? Zechariah's response is, how can I be sure? Mary asked for an explanation. Zechariah asked for more evidence. Zechariah cannot be sure of it. Mary just can't understand. You see, doubt is when we say to God, I believe it, I just don't see it. I don't see how it's going to happen, but I believe you can do what you said you're going to do. But unbelief is when we say, it's not going to happen, God. There's no way. And we deny the power of God. See, God's not opposed to us seeking understanding 
you know, to, to ask more questions. Sometimes, though, it's just beyond our comprehension. It's like, I could tell you this, but it'd be like you being an insect trying to do calculus. It's just not going to work out. You're not going to be able to figure out, I got this. And Mary, she's got a moment of doubt. She is praised as a result. For Zechariah, he has a moment of unbelief, and he's punished. The fourth thing we need to learn is that a moment of unbelief, it's not fatal. <laughs> We have the opportunity to repent and to recover. I mean, this isn't the end of Zechariah's story. There is resolve. There is some learning. There's some repentance. There's some understanding. You see, sometimes the road is bumpy with God, and he just makes it bumpier when we unbelieve. Because Just to remind us that he is in charge, to remind us that he has got this, that he will do what he said he's going to do. A few years back, I was having a conversation with Kirk Hines, who's on our staff, and he was sharing with me about a friend of his that whenever he punishes or disciplines his children, he has a conversation with them, and, uh, and it goes something like this. You know, I, I'm not punishing you because I don't love you. I'm doing this to remind you of the rules. I've since taken this on in, in my own parenting. And so, you know, if, if one of my children, if I got to punish them or if I, you know, if there's consequences to their decision and I have to discipline them, I remind them, it's like, look, daddy doesn't like to do this. But I'm doing this because I love you and I have to remind you of the rules. And this comes in real handy if you're at like a, a fancy restaurant and your kids are acting up. And all I have to do to my kids is look over and say, do I need to remind you of the rules? And it's amazing how quickly they remember. <laughs> But sometimes God does the same thing. He's going, look, I love you, but you're, you're unbelieving, so there's consequences to this. And I'm going to get you through it, but it's going to get bumpier, so you'll remember the rules that I am God, I've got this, and I will do what I said I'm going to do. Well, what should we do with this? Let's just get practical. i got four things quickly. The first is this. Keep praying. Keep praying. Let me ask you this this morning. What have you stopped praying about? What have you stopped praying about? What, what, what have you given up on? Because maybe you think God's given up on you. You see, God always answers our prayer requests with one of three answers. Yes, no, or later. And maybe the answer isn't no. Maybe the answer is just later. But you don't know. You need to keep praying. You're not going to wear him down. He can handle it. Keep praying. Second is this, keep believing. The answer to doubt is a choice to believe. You see, we live in a world that says, I will not believe it unless I can see it. But God never plays by those rules. God always says, you have to first believe it if you're going to see it. Some of you in this room, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You heard about tithing. You saw it on paper. It did not make sense. Um, but you went ahead and you decided to believe that God was going to do what he said he's going to do. And you took the step and you tithed. And now you see it. And you know what everybody else is talking about. Some of you, you tried this whole giving instead of receiving thing. And, and you didn't know. I mean, on paper, it sounded weird. didn't quite work out. But you went ahead. You, took, you chose to believe it. You chose to take God at his word. And now you see what everybody's talking about. And it becomes the natural decision. But for God, the answer to doubt, the answer to unbelief is to choose to believe it. And then you'll be able to see it. The third thing is this. Be ready to praise God. He's yet to break a promise. So be ready. Be ready. In fact, if you're waiting for certainty, there's only one thing you can be sure of. 
God took all the assurance and he bottled it up into one person. His name is Jesus Christ. He said, I'm the son of God. I I will die, but three days later, I will come back. If you will be my disciple, I will be with you always. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. And guess what? I'm coming back. (laughs) This you can be sure of. It's the only thing. In fact, I love in verse 20 what the angel says to Zechariah. Yeah, there's punishment. There's these things. And guess what? But this is all going to happen at its appointed time. In other words, this has always been on God's calendar. We didn't know it. But God knew it for decades. He had the date marked off. Yeah, this is when I'm going to fulfill this one. Yeah, I've heard you. I've heard you. Every single prayer over hundreds of years, people of Israel. Guess what? The date's getting close. I'm about to do it. It's going to be great. God has not forgotten about us. He's already on his calendar. We just don't get the, the privilege of always seeing that. So be ready for when it happens to praise God. And the fourth thing is to hold on to Jesus until it does happen. To hold on to Jesus, to hold on to the promises until you see them fulfilled. See, the rest of the story, it's it's real simple. Zechariah comes out. He can't speak, just like the angel said. He does some sort of charades. I would have loved to have been there, like angel freak out. I don't know what it was, but I'm sure it was awesome. He can't do the closing prayer, so he goes home. And Elizabeth is pregnant. And it says, for five months, she goes into seclusion. And I can just picture her. For five months, she's just singing. She's just praising God. She's just knitting baby blankets and thanking God for a mute husband. I mean, <laughs> nine months, she wins every argument, you know? You got to be ready to praise God. My daughter, Avery, she just turned two this month. And... um she started walking around age one, and we live in a, a two-story house, and, and so we have the staircase, one where, you know, half the stairs go down, you know, to a platform, and then the other stairs go down the rest of the way, and, um, and, and multiple times when her being one starting to, to walk, she gets to the top of the staircase, and you can see the look of panic on her face. How in the world am I going to get down from here? Well, I know. I'm always standing by her. I'm not going to let my daughter be at the staircase alone, the top of the staircase. And so I just scoop her up in my arms. And I begin to carry her down the staircase. Now, I don't just carry her and walk down the stairs. I, I make it bumpy. I make it fun. You know, I make noise like, boom, 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 boom. You know, it turns into a song and, and we go down and just bumpier. Crazy. And the bumpier I make it, the more she clings on to my neck and holds me and squeezes me tight. And I love that. <laughs> first couple times we'd do this, she'd freak out. <laughs> she, she'd, be, she'd look down at the stairs and, you know, wondering, you know, are we going to get hurt? And I'm, I know it's bumpy, but it's safe. I got her. You know, I'm going to get hurt before she does. It's okay. And she, she kind of looked down, going to look at me. Is this going to be okay? And just doesn't know quite what to do. Now, when she gets to the top of the staircase, there, there's no thinking. She just calls out my name and reaches up. See, I think for a lot of us this morning, we're standing atop of another one of those staircases in life. We're looking down and we're going, I have no idea how I'm going to get down from here. I have no idea how I'm going to attempt to do this and not break my neck. This looks like it's going to be painful. 
this looks like it's going to be horrible. And we forget to believe. We forget who's standing right beside us. And for this morning, all we got to do is call out his name and reach up. My daughter, she freaked out the first couple times we've done it, but she doesn't freak out anymore. Now she calls out my name, I scoop her up. And she looks at my face, looks in my eyes the whole way down, and she laughs <laughs> the whole way down. See, you can call out to Jesus this morning, and you can let him pick you up. It's still going to be a bumpy ride, but that's just him making it fun. <laughs> it is. That's just him saying, hey, hold on to my neck tighter. I love when you do that. Cling to me. I love when you do that. And you can freak out all the way down if you want. You can doubt. You can have those moments of unbelief. Or you can just look in his eyes and laugh and enjoy the ride. I'm going to invite our prayer partners to come forward. And you know what? I'm going to pray. But after that, I'm going to invite you to come forward if you need to. Maybe your step today, your first step is to simply step forward and pray with somebody. To pray with somebody. To to call out on the name of Jesus and to lift your hands up for him to scoop you up. That's what he's here for. Maybe it's time to to ask, call on his name for the first time and make him Lord of your life. And I invite you to come forward and pray with somebody. Pray with his bride. Pray with the body of Christ. Let us be a part of it so we can encourage you along the way. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you don't leave us at the top of the stairs. You're just waiting for us to believe and and do and believe that you're going to do what you said you're going to do. Well, today, Lord, we call out for Jesus. Today, we cling to him. Lord, we'll hold on no matter how bumpy the ride. We just want to be yours and we want to let the whole world know. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things.